Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. I want to begin the message this morning by asking the question, why? W-H-Y question mark. Why? Why do we come together every Sunday morning? Why do we sing songs? Why do we pray prayers? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we listen to preaching? Why do we bring food every Sunday and eat a meal together? Why do we go over to Bannister Park on Wednesdays when at the same time we have a nice air-conditioned building that we can sit in without bugs? Why do we spend 90 minutes on Wednesdays studying the Bible together? Why do we invite one another over to each other's house to enjoy meal and fellowship? Why do we send money to missionaries in South Africa? Why do we give money to strangers in this community to help them out? Why do we go door to door and invite people to our services, especially around Easter and Christmas? Why do we arrange our lives around the community life of the church? Why are we so adamant about fulfilling the four pillars of our church? Worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. You see, the last four weeks, we have looked at our four pillars. We have examined them. And those sermons have been extremely helpful to me. If you were to ask me, Ryan, have you missed preaching? And I would say to you, I have not missed preaching. And the reason why is because I've been feasting on four excellent sermons from the Word of God. And so we've been challenged and encouraged and instructed in our four pillars. To bring the series to a proper conclusion, what I want to do is I want to take the opportunity for us to connect our pillars with our purpose. Okay, Our pillars are essentially what we do. We worship. We fellowship. We we take part in discipleship. We do mission. That's what we do. Our purpose is why we do it. Why? Why are we doing this? Because this is what I know about humanity. And this this is what I know about my own life. And I think this is what I know about you as well. And then over time, you and I can get into a, what I'll call a mindless groove of behavior. We can get into a rhythm of life, a habit of doing the same things over and over and over again. And somewhere along the way, we lose sight of the why. We lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing. But we just keep on doing what we're doing without thinking about the why. And so when we lose the sight of the why, the what becomes monotonous. When we lose sight of the why, the the what becomes stale. When we lose sight of the why, the what becomes obligatory. And so all of a sudden you look up and you think to yourself, I have to go to church today. I need to share the gospel with somebody. I'm responsible to give money to the church. I have to do this. We need to do that. Honey, we need to go here. We need to do this. We need to have... And and so the what becomes obligatory when we lose vision of the why. And so I have a simple goal this morning. I want to answer the question, why should we commit ourselves to our four pillars? Why should we commit ourselves to worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission? And I want to do this in two ways, two simple ways. I want us to closely examine one small text of Scripture, 
And then I want us to use the momentum that we get there to examine our purpose statement. That, that clear enough? And, and, and I'm just going to tell you straight up, we could probably go straight to the purpose statement because our purpose statement is essentially uh, a systematic explanation of what we believe Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 says about life, about, about um, worship, about our meaning, about our why. But I'm just going to tell you right now, straight up, um, it is very difficult for Ryan Limbaugh to stand up in front of anybody and not explain at least one text of Scripture uh, very closely. Okay, So what I want you to do is I want you to go to Ephesians 1, Ephesians chapter 1. We're only going to look at verses 22 and 23. This is going to launch us into our why. It's going to launch us into our purpose, why we exist. And it's going to center us on Jesus Christ. And that's really the goal here. We want to center our why, our purpose on Jesus Christ. And so the the first thing that we need to know about Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, it's got 21 verses that precede it. And Paul is writing to a local church. He's writing to a church. And, and And he's just declared that the church has this glorious position as the redeemed people of God. Church, you have a glorious position as the redeemed people of God. And this is what's happened. The Father has selected you. He has chosen you from the very foundation of the world. The Son has been sacrificed for you. He's been substituted for you. He took your place. And in taking your place, you now can have life, not death. You can have heaven, not hell. You can have eternity rather than damnation, condemnation. And so the Father has selected you. The Son has been sacrificed for you. And the Spirit has sealed you. And that is the guarantee of your inheritance. And so there has been a great work that has happened in your lives as the one people of God. And then that gets us to verses 22 and verse 23. And he says, and he put all things under his feet. That is, God the Father has put all things under the Son's feet, under Jesus Christ's feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's read it one more time. God the Father put all things under Christ, who is the Son, who put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's make three observations right now about Jesus Christ from this text. Let's make the first observation of the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. He says he put all things under his feet. What does it mean that God put all things under Christ's feet? It means that when God the Father put all things under his feet, he put all things there, everything. There is nothing outside the realm of Jesus Christ's authority. I've said it before and I'll say it again, quoting R.C. Sproul. There is no maverick molecule in the entire universe. Christ reigns over every one of them. 
God has given Christ authority over everything. And we need to understand that He doesn't have merely the position of authority. He has the power of authority. All powers, all principalities, all people are not simply inferior to Christ. They are subject to Him. Authority is the power to control. Listen to me, this is what authority is. It is the power to control, command, determine, and preside. It is the power to control, command, determine, and preside. And he has that authority. There's a transfer of authority. God has given it to his son, Jesus. And it's not a new plan. It's an old plan. He has planned to give full authority to his son from the beginning. If you can remember in Psalm 110, David writes this psalm, and he, this is what he says. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Remember that verse? And, and Jesus and, and, well, and Peter in particular used that passage to say, how is it that the Lord said to the Lord? It's because the Father said to the Son. God the Father said to God the Son, I'm going to give you all authority and I'm going to make everything underneath your feet. You have power to preside, determine and make happen. But then during his ministry, as Jesus approached the earth and walked with sinners, he says in Matthew chapter 11, that all things have been delivered to me by my father. Not some things, not some things in in this church realm or this uh, Jewish realm. No, all things have been given to me by my father. And then once he lived the perfect life and then died a sacrificial death and rose from the dead, he is going to, uh, he's going to leave his disciples to, to carry out the great commission. And what does he say to his disciples in Matthew 28? He says, all authority has been given to me. All authority. And so... Jesus Christ not only has the position of authority, but he has the power to use it as well. And I think it is good for us to see that in action because I think that we can be tempted, church. We can be tempted to have like um, head knowledge that Christ has authority. But then when we go out and live our lives, we're just like, well, I know that the Bible says he has authority, but I'm just not... How how does that really relate to me? How does that relate to my family? How does that relate to our church? Well, we see how it relates to the church in the book of Acts. So Christ ascends. He goes to the right hand of the Father and He sends His Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus Christ, into uh, his disciples. And then they go, and in Acts chapter 2, he sends his Holy Spirit. You have the tongues of fire. Ministry breaks out. And in, and, in, and in Acts 2, Christ brings repentance to thousands in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? Thousands of people repent because Christ had the authority to bring them to repentance. And then in Acts chapter 5, the church is growing. It's blossoming. There are over 5,000 people who, are, who trusted in Christ by His power. And all of a sudden, Ananias and Sapphira, they manipulate, they deceive, and ultimately the power of Christ strikes them down because Christ wants a pure church. In Acts chapter 7, Christ strengthens Stephen to stand before the Sanhedrin and all of these Jewish religious leaders and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and their guilt. And he, he gives them the power to stand even in the midst of his own martyrdom, being the first Christian martyr. And Christ gives 
the power for him to do that. Christ arrests the soul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus is on his way to persecute and imprison Christians, and yet the power of Christ comes upon Saul of Tarsus in such a way that he radically transforms his life in a moment. You were talking about radical transformation a few weeks ago, Joey. That's the power of Christ. Christ powerfully transforms this man's life. In Acts chapter 10, Christ saves Gentiles. In Acts chapter 12, Christ strikes Herod down for not giving glory to God. We could go on and on. And what I want to just, just, this is kind of an aside. It's a picture though. But I just want you to know, church, Christ's power is not an imaginary power. It's not a theoretical power. It is a real power that can be and will be and is used inside His church. I know that people love having authority. Because authority brings with it a lot of advantages. It brings power, control, influence, security. It brings a lot of things. And, and there are a lot of people who pursue power, who pursue authority, whether it be uh, in civic organizations or in the business world or even in politics. And, and not everybody pursues authority, or even in the church. You know, there are a lot of people who want to be pastors because it gives them authority. It gives them power, it gives them control, it gives them influence. But it doesn't matter what people pursue these positions of authority for their own power. There is one reality that will be true. Christ is in authority over them. And one day, we'll all, just like they will, be accountable to this authoritative Savior. I want us to see also the headship of Christ. Because Paul says he gave him as head over all things to the church. What what does it mean that Christ has been given headship over all things to the church? Well, headship is really a similar concept to authority. To be head over everything is to be at the top of everything. It is to be uppermost in relation to everything else. But what we want to know is look at, look at the text, either on the screen or in your Bible. I want us to notice that Christ's headship is for a very specific purpose and for a very specific people. Look at it. God the Father didn't merely give Christ to be head over all things. He gave Christ to be head over all things, what? To the church. This means that Christ is the unrivaled ruler of the entire universe for the benefit of a church. That is amazing. People who have been transformed by the gospel form a spiritual family, a spiritual family called the church. And it is for the church's benefit and the church's advantage that Jesus Christ has been made ruler of the universe. I asked Carson last night, I said, Carson... When, when we come together every Sunday morning, do you just feel like there, there is somewhere between 80 and 110 people, 120 people who are just magnificently awesome? And we just look at each other and mind. This is, this is an amazing group of people that God has put together. And he said, Dad, I don't really think that way. 
I said, I said, thanks for being honest. And I don't either because this is the thing. It's not that Christ has assembled a magnificently awesome group of people. It's that the magnificently awesome Jesus Christ has brought to himself a ragtag group of people whom he is exercising authority over the whole world that we might proclaim his praise. You know, we, uh, we see a very small picture of what it means to have full authority with a very special purpose in the book of Genesis. You remember when Joseph got sold into slavery and then he goes into prison, prison and then all of these terrible things happen to him. But ultimately, God redeems this situation and brings him into a place of authority in the nation of Egypt. And you remember the Pharaoh basically had given him all of this authority. And in the midst of all that, as Joseph knows that this famine is coming, and he knows that people could die, and and his, his family begins to approach him, and Joseph uses his authority to provide safety and nourishment and blessing to his family. Remember that? He used his, if you will, universal authority over Egypt and the land that surrounded him for a very specific person to for a very specific purpose, which is to care for his family. And I want to tell you something, church. Jesus Christ has universal authority. And he carries it out for a very specific purpose. And that is for your advantage and my advantage. Your blessing, my blessing. Praise his name. We are his special people. The third observation I want us to make from this verse is the body of Christ. So we see the authority of Christ, we see the headship of Christ, and now we see the body of Christ. It says that um, the church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What does that even mean? What does it mean that we're the body of Christ, that we're the fullness of Christ? Well, I mean, if you think about it in the terms of, uh, of the human body, Christ is the head, we are the body, the church is the body. That is to say, Christ is the source of the church's life. The center of the church's unity. He is everything to the church. Without Christ, there is no church. And then, this is amazing. We are the full expression of who Jesus is. Now, that's a radical statement. But how can you interpret verse 23 any other way? We are the full expression of who He is. We share in the power and glory of Jesus. And not only do we share in His power and glory, we are the full expression of that. We display to the universe the infinite riches of His glory. We possess the exceeding greatness of His power. We have access to the full presence and full power of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because we are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Amen. <laughs> and so we, we sometimes, when we hear language like that and realities like that, we might have a tendency to, to get a big head. If I say, church, you are the fullness of Him who fills all in all, we can't get a big head. We don't even have a head. We're, we're, we're fingers and toes. Our only head is Jesus Christ. And without Him, we're nothing. We're dead. We're lifeless. And so we know we can't get one because we have to trust in Him. And so it produces humility and not pride. I grabbed a light bulb out of the, 
closet just before the service because some might say that a light bulb is an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing and it produces amazing results. That if it were dark in here, middle of midnight, and we plug this thing up, it would shine so much so that, that you could see things even if you were in the back corner of the building. But you know what's really so amazing about a light bulb is the power source. It's the wiring. And it's the one who invented the power source and the wiring to make a light bulb actually shine. And church, I just want you to know, we're the light bulb. That's what we are. And and right now, if you were to say, Ryan, could, could you just turn that thing on? And I say, I can't turn it on. And you, and you were to say, but, but Ryan, then tell me why this is awesome if it doesn't do anything. All right, I would say, I would say, I have to plug it up to the power source. Right. And listen, I want to tell you, that, that is the nature of the authority and the power and the headship of Jesus Christ. All right, He is the power source. He is the inventor. He is the one that controls this thing right here. And we only shine when we're connected to Him and submissive to Him and under His headship. And so nothing should thrill us more than the truth that Redeemer Church is the body of Christ. We are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We are the most privileged people on planet Earth because we're fully connected to His glory. Okay, that is the exposition of 22 and 23, but what that does, it, it then catapults us into why we are who we are. All right, why we are who we are. Um, And so let's go to our purpose statement. Redeemer Church exists. We are the fullness of Christ. We're connected to our head. He is the source of our life. We're submissive to Him. He's ruling over everything for the sake of our benefit. And we exist to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people through worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. And so... If you're taking notes right now, I kind of have just this this statement broken down into numbers. Like number one, I want to ask the question from our purpose statement, who are we? Who are we? It's doesn't don't have a slide for that. It's just simply who are we? And we answer the question, we're a church. We're a local church. We're not a corporation. We're not a foundation. We're not an organization. We're not a business. We, we, We are a group of people called the church. And there is no other group of people in the world quite like us. We are an assembly of people whose lives have been eternally and radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are a people who've been transformed by the gospel. And we've said it a thousand times, we'll say it a thousand more. The gospel is the good news of salvation through faith in the person and work of Jesus. That's what the gospel is. And we've been saved, we've been changed, we've been brought into this group of people by the gospel. That's who we are. We are a local church. We not only believe the gospel... But our lives have been altered by the gospel. We've been united to God and to each other forever. And I I want us to understand the gravity and the beauty that we are one family, that we are one body, that are eternally connected to one another. And so um, I I want you to raise your hand if you are a member of uh, Oxford Library. 
Okay, we got about at least half of us. Okay, you can put your hands down. Robbie, do you feel eternally and radically and infinitely connected to every member at Oxford Library? No, you don't. No, you don't. Okay, all right. Um, raise your hand if you go to work and the place that you work, the managers call you a team. Okay, good, 25, 30 of you. Okay. Do you feel eternally and infinitely connected to your team at work? No, you don't. No, <laughs> yes. Listen, I could ask questions about country clubs. I could ask questions about sports teams. I could ask questions about clubs. But this is the thing. There is only one group of people that you are eternally and infinitely and radically connected to, and it is the church of Jesus Christ. So what we are is a local assembly of repentant believers who are joined together to worship God, practice the ordinances, and fulfill the Great Commission. That's what we are. We are the church. The second question that I want to ask from our purpose statement is what is our name? What is our name? Our name is Redeemer. And listen, a name says a lot about what you are. A name says a lot about who you are. And with our name being Redeemer, what we want to do is we want to say a lot about us when we say our name. Listen, we didn't didn't start Redeemer four years ago and look through the phone book at the 392 different churches in Calhoun County in the area and say, wow, there's not a Redeemer, let's call it that. That's not how we did it. No, we, we said, you know what, we want to center our church life around one person, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He is who we serve. He is who we love. He is who paid the price for us. And so we call ourselves Redeemer because that's who we look to. Redemption, Redemption is deliverance from bondage to freedom. That's what redemption is. It is deliverance from bondage to freedom. If you read the Scriptures and if you read the the context, the life context around the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, what you find about redemption Redemption is that it really requires three things. Redemption to be purchased. It's not, it's not first and foremost a spiritual term. When you and I hear redemption, we think, we think spiritual redemption. But it was something that happened all the time in ancient life where in particular slaves could be redeemed and servants could be redeemed. And what that meant was you might have this one slave who was in this group of, of people who were, who were just kind of subservient to this larger group. And all of a sudden there would be this maybe trading block. And what would be required for a slave to be redeemed would be three things. A redeemer. A redeemer would have to come and desire the, the person or the slave who is going to be redeemed. And, and, and so the Redeemer would say, I want that person, or I want that servant, or I want that slave. But it also would require a ransom, a payment that had to be made for that person to be redeemed. And sometimes it would include a substitute, a replacement. And so I'll tell you what, you know, if, if, if a master would say, you know, I want that servant, then he would say, I'll offer you this in place of him so that I can have him. Well, listen, exactly where we were. We were in the slave market of sin. We were struggling. We had no life. We were in bondage to our own self, in bondage to our own sin, in bondage to the flesh and the world and even the devil himself. And Jesus Christ 
serves three roles. He is the redeemer. He is the ransom payment. And he's also the substitute. He does it all for us. And so when we revel, we call ourselves Redeemer Church and that we exist, we understand that what we're saying is we've been bought out of the slave house of sin and delivered over into freedom and joy in Jesus Christ. And he's done it all. So we're rescued from our sin and brought over to salvation. So now I want to ask the third question about our purpose statement. Why do we exist? Why do we exist? We exist to pursue the glory of God and joy of all people. I'll tell you this. If we exist for any other purpose, we need to shut the doors. Let's look at the word pursue. Because we've experienced redemption, we are not a passive people. We've not been redeemed to sit around and do nothing and wait around until the Redeemer returns as King of Kings. And when we use that analogy of redemption church in that first century slave market, we need to understand that a master, a redeemer, would redeem a slave by paying that ransom price. And once he had that slave and he's been redeemed, do you think that the master would say, okay, now I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to work. I don't want you to serve. I don't want you to labor. I don't want you to do anything. No, that's not what he would do. The redeemer would put into employment the one he's purchased. And so that's why we have this word pursue in our purpose statement. Paul uses it twice in Philippians chapter 3. It is the Greek word dioko. It means to pursue. It means pressing forward, running toward, bearing down. He said, I press on, I pursue, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. I press toward the goal. I pursue toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we exist to pursue. We exist to press forward. We exist to run toward, to chase down two things. The glory of God and the joy of all people. Now, the glory of God has become a common phrase in the Christian culture. But I wonder if we really understand what we're talking about when we say the glory of God. And this is the point in the message where I want to invite some interaction. And I want you to know that this interaction is not just to get some sound bites. I want us to to think right now. Think right now. When you hear the phrase, the glory of God, what comes to your mind? It's a great word. That's exactly right. Majesty. What? Holiness. Holiness. I'm going to make that connection in a minute. I'm going to make the connection between the holiness of God and the glory of God, but absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, And see, sometimes maybe some of us, Candace, don't think about that part of God and His glory. I think a lot of times we look at all the bigness, but we don't see the goodness and the mercy and the compassion that goes in with that. So that's a good observation. So we've got majesty and holiness and goodness. Light. Light. Oh, Absolutely. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 really hits on that. Thank you, Trina. Justice, perfection. Yeah. 
the, 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 the bigness and heaviness of God, right? Like his, just the, just the incomprehensible bigness of God that we have a, we have a, a universe that we can't possibly see to the end of and God's bigger than that. Fullness. In Christ, yes. Yes. I'm going to get to that too, Jeremy, because that, that is absolutely significant to His glory. I mean, that is as, as part and parcel to His glory. His Son is. Okay, what? Yeah, the joy of God. His, that's right. His, his joy, His happiness. The happiness of God. I, you know, there are some pastors who even say the happiest person in the universe is God Himself. And so... One of my heroes in the faith, John Piper, has defined God's glory this way. And if you want to write this definition down, it's really, it's just a slight bit different than the way that I have defined it probably five to ten times in the last four years. But I like his a little better. All right. And so this is the glory of God. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. I'm going to repeat it. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. We talked last night about the word manifold. It's not a word that I use very much. And, and I was telling Carson that it was kind of like, uh, like an onion, that there are so many layers to an onion that you just you can't ever kind of seem to be, only get to the bottom of it. There are so many layers to the glory of God, but God smells so much better than an onion. He looks so much better than an onion. All right, but it is a manifold nature to all of His perfections. And so... There, you can write down the references right now, but so what I want to do is kind of give you a systematic kind of understanding of the glory of God, and it's just an introduction, but, but, but if you want notes, I can give you those later on in the week, but if you want to just jot down the references, what I want to do is I want to say that the Bible talks a lot about the glory of God. Yeah. And so like in Psalm 19.1, the psalmist says, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. And by the heavens, it means all of the earth, the clouds that we see, the sun that shines, the thunder that, that quakes, the lightning that comes down. Jamie and, and the boys were telling me that they got caught in the storm out at the barn the other day. And, and the lightning was coming down and the thunder was rolling and the clouds were coming in in that dark color. And, and, and what we see in all of that is that God is shouting to us. He's shouting to us, I am glorious. And you know, when the rain comes and it goes into the ground and then it goes into to the, the, the plants that nurture the blueberry bushes and the tomatoes and those fruits become plump and you pick those and you bring them inside and you wash them off and you eat them, you are actually tasting a bit of the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. God is shouting to us, I am glorious. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, when Isaiah sees the vision of God 
sitting on the throne in the temple, and the whole robe of the Lord is filling up this temple. And there are seraphim, that is angels. And, and, and the look about them is so amazing. And Isaiah relates that they have wings that cover eyes and wings that cover feet. And, and, and all of this is going on. And they are saying this, and that, our sister uh, was imp- implying this, they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You remember that? And by holy, we're saying he is supreme. He is set apart. He is separate. He is sinless. He is so much different than us. There is an otherness to God that we can't even comprehend. And then as they're saying this, the very next thing they say is the whole earth is full of his, not holiness, but what? His glory. There is a direct connection between the holiness of God and the glory of God. So that when we think about His otherness, we think about His separateness and His supremacy and His unstained nature, He is then extending that to us in some way through His creation that we are beholding His glory. But then we we read in Romans 3.23, which many of you have this verse memorized, that all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. What does that mean? It means that we've fallen short of beholding His infinite beauty. We've fallen short of seeing the greatness of His manifold perfections. We've fallen short of not only beholding them, but seeing them and savoring them and being satisfied in them. No, we've fallen short of all that because we've rebelled. And I can't remember which pastor that has said this, which preacher has said it, but he said, it's like the glory of God shines at us, like the sun. Just shines and and just shows us the greatness of His glory. But what we do is we turn our back to the glory of God. And what happens is He shines the light of His glory and our bodies cast a shadow, just like my body is casting a shadow all the way across this stage and all the way up that rock wall right there. And what we do with our backs turned to the glory of God is we chase after the shadow. We chase after the shadow and we're looking for it and we're groping for it because we think in that shadow, that's where we're going to be satisfied. That's where we're going to find contentment. That's where we're going to find joy. And we spend our whole lives groping and grasping after the shadow if we would just turn around and behold the beauty and glory of the one who's shining the glorious light. Well, we've fallen short. But Romans 5, 2, two chapters later says that Christians rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, just like Jeremy was saying, the glory of God is seen most clearly, most powerfully, most savingly, most transformatively in the person of Jesus Christ. When we see Christ, we're beholding His glory. In John chapter 1, John says that we beheld His glory. That is the glory of Christ. And He was full of grace and truth. Yesterday I spent two hours reading the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. From chapter 1 to chapter 28. And do you know what? When I read in that first chapter how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of generation after generation from Abraham all the way through David and then now down to his own earthly father, Joseph, you know what I'm realizing? I'm seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ that God is going to fulfill His promises. 
when I'm seeing him live his life and preach this sermon on the mount, when he says, you've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, that you should not murder. But I say to you, I am seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ as he's reaching down into my heart and saying, it's more than about your outward acts. It's about where your allegiance is internally. I'm seeing the glory of Jesus Christ when people come to him and say, please heal me. Please rescue my son. And he goes and rescues them. I'm seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ when this woman approaches him and says, oh, I need you to help my child and rescue my child. And he says, you're not an Israelite. You're not a Jew. I'm, I'm sorry. She says, but even the dogs need the crumbs sometimes. And he goes and heals her as well. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ ultimately. And finally, when he marches to the cross, the eternal Son of God, and is persecuted first, and then He takes on our sin and experiences hell on our behalf. That's the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then when He raises from the dead on the third day, we see the power of God, we see the greatness of God, but more than anything else, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let us not understand the glory of God in any way apart from the person, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And dare let us not understand it in any way that one day He will return and He'll reign King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, the Bible talks a lot about the glory of God. I have seven more passages here that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll treat that as sufficient. But what we'll say is obviously the glory of God is a very important and significant thing. And what is it? It is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. And so we exist, church, we exist to pursue the excellence and beauty of God. I'll say this. Listen to me. If you use the gospel in a multitude of ways, but you don't use the gospel to get yourself to God, then you're not using the gospel rightly. And if you're not using the gospel to get yourself into a relationship with this glorious, beautiful, excellent person, then you're not using the gospel at all. Because the very point of the gospel is to bring us into relationship and intimacy with the God of infinite glory. And so the gospel is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The The gospel is not something where we can just punch our ticket and then go live however we want to live apart from the glory of God. Listen, if you punch your ticket and go live however you want to live apart from the glorious majesty of Almighty God, you've got a fake ticket. And so I want to encourage you today to ask the question, am I truly connected to the glory of God? Am I truly connected to this infinitely beautiful, uh, manifold perfection God such that He is my treasure, He is my life, He is my joy, He is why I do everything that I do. And so we exist to pursue His glory. We exist to pursue the infinite beauty and greatness of God. And connected to that, 
and absolutely connected to that. And, and, and no way can we be disconnected is that while we're pursuing the glory of God, we are at the very same time pursuing what? The joy of all people. The joy of all people. You see, not only are we committed to shine forth the glory of God, we're committed, we're highly committed to people's joy. Psalm 1611, David says, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 34, he says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Psalm 47, clap your hands all peoples, shout to God with loud sounds of joy. In Psalm 51, David has sinned grievously. He sinned terribly. He sinned awfully. And he goes to God and he says to God, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 67.4 says, Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Isaiah 49.13 makes this call. It says, Call Uh, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. And what what that passage is saying is that we need to be joyful because of what God is and who He is and how He works in our lives. And so it is the desire of God for all the people of the earth to be a joyful people. He wants us to have joy. He wants all the people in the friendship community to have joy. He wants everyone in our region to have joy. He wants the world to have joy. And what is joy? Joy is not based on our circumstances. It's not based on how much money we have in our bank account. It's not based on whether or not we've gone on a great vacation this year. It's not based on the qualitative nature of our family life. It's not based on any of those circumstances. Our joy is based on Jesus Christ. Listen, joy is a constant inner delight of the soul. That's what it is. It is a constant inner delight of the soul that rests its joy, rests its happiness on our right relationship with God. I remember, remember I was 23. And at 23 years old, I had basically lived my whole life with the understanding that my calling in life was to honor God. My calling in life was to obey God. My calling in life was to uphold the righteousness of God. My calling in life was to be moral the way that God is moral. My calling in life is to represent God to the people that are in my life. I had that understanding and I had that desire. But listen, church, I had never made the connection. I never made the connection between the glory of God and my own personal joy. And I'm riding over Greenbrier Road, over the mountain, and I get down to the light. If you can remember, there used to be old baseball fields across the, the street right there. Oh, and and, and I was, I'm at the light, and I, I hear this pastor preaching, and he said something to the effect, there is no contradiction between the glory of God and your joy because you'll never be satisfied and joyful outside of the glory of God. He's made you for joy. He's made you for delight. He's made you for happiness. He's made you for satisfaction. But you'll never find it outside of Him. 
and those who do find satisfaction outside of Christ. Look, it's not that it's not a real satisfaction. I mean, there are a lot of people today that are, you know, no, no offense to them, if they're on a lake, or they're on a boat, they're enjoying caviar and wine, and, and life is grand. It's not that they're not satisfied in some way, but what it is to say is that it is a superficial satisfaction, and it's a temporal one. Because one day it will end for them. And so we find our satisfaction, our joy in who Christ is and how He's brought us to God. Redeemer Church exists to pursue the joy of all people in God. Listen, that's why when people come to us for help, deacons, and you all minister to them, we don't just offer them money. We offer them help with the purpose to point them to God. Because without pointing to God, whatever help we give them on a temporal basis is only temporal. It's not eternal and it will never satisfy their need. Okay. We're in a good place. So, as you guys have noticed, I, I hope that you're as excited and as proud of the banners that we've put up on our four pillars. But we wanted to do that at the end of our, at the end of our uh, series. And so... Um, we, we ask the question, why do we exist? We exist to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people. And we have a process to do that. And I'm not going to re-preach or even at this point summarize the four sermons that have been given in the previous four weeks. But church, this is my goal. This is my goal this morning. That the glory of God and the joy of of you and your family and the joy of all the people of the earth will so compel you that you will not mindlessly go through the routine of Sunday worship. That you will not just get in the groove and the rut of fellowshipping on Sunday afternoons. That you will not just get into, well, we'll go some weeks to build and we'll go to this thing that we're doing or this special discipleship training and that's just kind of what we need to do. Or we won't just engage in mission where we just write a check to missions or we'll just do a little knocking on the door when that time comes. Guys, gals, my desire, my prayer is that the glory of God and the joy of all people will so compel you that you will get out of some mindless groove, that you will get out of some humdrum rhythm of life, and you will be awakened today, that you will pursue the glory of God and joy of all people through our four pillars in a way that you never have before. You will give yourself over to those things and to those ministries in a way that we cannot help but radiate the infinite beauty and majesty of God because we are a radically changed people. That's my prayer. That is my goal. So, uh, Phil, if you want to come on up right now, I'm going to make one, one statement here. We are one people with one purpose and one process. We are one people with one purpose and one process. What people are we? Are we the church? What purpose do we have? The glory of God and the joy of all people. And what one, purpose, what one process do we have? The four pillars. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. We should be thrilled with our purpose and therefore embrace our process.
You know, God gives us moments in our life that in some ways are, are landmarks. You remember when we studied uh, there in the early part of Samuel and Samuel built that altar and called it Ebenezer? Remember that? It was, it was a moment for Samuel and for the people of Israel. They got to put in the ground what God had done. It was a sense of an allegiance to this glorious God and this delivering God. And this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of make your own Ebenezer. I want to give you the opportunity, if, if, you've, if you've never truly given your life to Christ, like you hear about this, this glorious God, and you hear about joy, and you hear about all of these things that Jesus did, and you say to yourself in the back of your mind and kind of in the hollowness of your heart, I'm not connected to that. It sounds good. It sounds amazing. I'm not connected to that. I I don't feel connected to that. I need to give my life to Christ. I need to trust Him. I need to run after His glory and I need to say, I give my life to Christ. I want to be redeemed. I want to to come out of the slave house of my sin and I want to come under His servanthood. I want to come into the freedom of the joy that He gives. I want to give you the opportunity to give your life to Christ right now. And, and, and after I finish talking right here, I'm just going to come down front. And I'm going to pray over here on the corner. And, and if you want to give your life to Christ, you just kneel down beside me. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to pray for you. The second thing I want to do is I want to call any of you members who know Jesus. You just feel stale. You just feel like you're in that mindless routine and that, that calloused routine of church life. And the fact is, you've just been rolling along. You've just been doing what you do. And there is very little affection. There is very little passion. There is very little excitement and zeal to pursue, to doggedly go after the glory of God with your whole heart. And there have been maybe a lot of things that have prevented you from doing that. But today, you get the opportunity to hit the restart button. To get refreshed. To get renewed in the glory of God and the joy not only of all people, but in the joy of you. I want to ask you to come down front today. I don't, not, I'm not going to promise anybody going to pray with you. But if you want to establish an Ebenezer in your own life, you come down and you just pray and say, God, I want to reset. I want to reset. I want to renew my passion for your glory. And then I, I want to do one other thing. If you're not a member of Redeemer and you either want to become a member or you want more information about joining this family that's pursuing the glory of God and the joy of all people, Ron, I actually want you to stand by our theme verse. And if there's anybody who wants to talk more about joining during this time, they can come talk to you. Ron Marino, one of our pastors. Is that okay with you, Ron? All right. So we're going to sing some right here, Phil. And let's respond to the purpose of Redeemer Church to glorify God.